0: For months now, we've seen protest after protest outside housing facilities for asylum seekers. But why are people actually concerned about the arrival of foreigners into their communities? Dr Barry Cannon and his colleagues at Maynooth University have been analysing the reasons these demonstrations are happening.
1: First of all, people are scared of the other. I think that's quite a reasonable and quite a human reaction. And the second thing is that people are scared about the lack of resources in their communities and the ability of them and their families to be able to access those resources.
0: Immigration has now surpassed housing and the cost of living to become the issue at the forefront of voters' minds. This is according to Snapshot, a new Irish Times and Ipsos Behaviour and attitudes survey. Barry Cannon says we need a national conversation that's honest about the difficult impacts of immigration without the far right setting the terms of the debate.
1: There's a discursive vacuum there and the far right have come to fill that. But they also capitalise on a deep rooted racism which exists in not just in our society, but in every Western society.
0: Irish Times political correspondent Jennifer Bray says politicians now openly admit that they're afraid of this subject.
2: If they raise these issues in the doll or with the media, that they will be seen to be pandering towards the far right or that they will be seen to be engaging in dog whistle politics.
0: I'm Sarah Pollock and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, let's have the difficult conversation about immigration. Dr. Barry Cannon is Assistant Professor in Sociology at Maynooth University. Barry, you carried out some research last year into the main reasons why people are protesting against housing for international protection and applicants here in Ireland or asylum seekers, as they're more commonly known. Can you talk to me about the main issues that you found which are driving these protests?
1: Yeah, what we did was we looked at 144 newspaper accounts and extracted quotes from people on why they were attending the protests and we looked at people who were protesting against asylum seeker accommodation and those who were protesting in support of asylum seekers. There were five issues basically, yeah. There was safety, resource scarcity, lack of consultation, distancing from the far right and suitability of sites. And there was also a class element to that as well in some Dublin areas where they would say that basically it wouldn't happen in the more well-heeled areas of Dublin. And there was one guy, for example, who said, you know, uh, people living in Dublin four or Dublin six would go straight to the high court. We can't do that because we don't have enough money. So we go to the street. So there's a mixing, thing, the feeling of neglect by those in power uh, and this lack of consultation. So people would make a point of saying that they weren't racist, their community was already multicultural, uh, that they were not far right. But nonetheless, you could interpret maybe many of their complaints, uh, such as that around security and safety, as being inherently racist in the in the sense that there's an assumption that young men of foreign extraction would be more prone to attacking elderly people, children or women in the local area. Uh, And there was also a repetition of far right tropes, such as the Great Replacement Theory, which is this conspiracy theory that elites are trying to replace local communities with migrants. So you have this mixture, basically, of uh, what could be termed legitimate complaints, uh, which are laced with sort of far right tropes and a certain element of racism as well.
0: Could you tell from your research, Barry, that their primary concern really is around competition for resources and not actually the fear of the other? Could people have been using the resources as a cover up for how they really feel?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, question, Sorka. And um, in research that we looked at in the United Kingdom and research in Europe, especially in Germany, is that there's a lot of slippage between these different categories of complaints, shall we say. People could be expressing concern for the uh, welfare of asylum seekers, whilst at the same time repeating some far-right tropes. Um, And I think it's very, very difficult to sort of disentangle the two really. What what we talk about or what we talked about in our article in the Irish Times was this idea of a sort of a discursive vacuum. There have been a lot of changes in Irish society, as I'm sure you know, we've got like 20% of the population in Ireland now was born outside Ireland. So you've had these huge demographic changes in Ireland, but very little discussion about them and if there is any discussion at all, it's usually discussed in sort of under two kind of rubrics. One is that we need migrants for our economy uh, for various reasons to fill skills shortages, uh, but also this whole idea of the pension time bomb and that we need uh, migrants to come in in order to be able to, to, to pay to afford our pensions. And then the other one is around the uh, human rights of asylum seekers. And it's usually those two elements which are the main discussions. But there isn't really any discussion at all about the impact of migrants on community, on local communities. Uh, communities have been neglected. There is a lack of housing. There is a lack of services. So there's a discursive vacuum there and the far right has come to fill that. But they also capitalise on a deep-rooted racism which exists in, not just in our society, but in every Western society. You know, the economies of the West were built in imperialism and racism was almost invented in order to justify the imperialist project. Uh, not just built in imperialism, but built in slavery as well. Uh, and I'm not saying Ireland specifically in that case. We do differ from the vast majority of uh, Western European countries at any rate, which were largely colonising Uh, nations. But at the same time, you know, we are part of Western society and racism was used historically in order to incorporate working class and middle class people into imperialist projects. And Ireland was not an exception to that uh, in the sense that the British Empire did incorporate many Irish people. So I wouldn't say so much that, you know, people, of course, will express racist Uh, uh, ideas, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say that they're always racist, at least not in intent. These are ideas which circulate, which never have gone away and which can be tapped into very easily and resuscitated and used for political purposes. And that is exactly what the far right are doing at the moment. They're using them for political purposes, but also they are there amongst mainstream politicians as well. Uh, And what's dangerous about that is that then that uh, allows the far right to set the parameters of the debate Uh, and that those parameters are either you're for immigration or you're against immigration and the only way you can be against immigration is by closing the borders
0: Keisha Gleyavrakar has said on a number of occasions recently that immigration is a good thing for this country and that our public services, such as hospitals, care homes, they simply would not function without migrant workers. But research actually shows that immigration tends to directly benefit elites more than our working classes. How does that work?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, again, this is a good question, Sarka. I mean, first of all, it fills labour shortages, Yeah. Um, and not just in the public service, you know, and in, 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 in health care, of course, which is, uh, of course, very important for all of us, but also in high skilled businesses like tech, for example, and in low skilled areas uh, such as, you know, restaurants, hotels, uh, supermarkets, so on, so forth. Um, and so, you know, you bring in that labor, that labor was uh, was educated you know, the high-skilled labor was educated and some of the low-skilled labor was educated at no cost to us. They were educated abroad. So you're getting that labour almost free and you get profit out of that and that profit goes to elites. So that's one way that it benefits elites. Um, Another way is, like, just think about it, you know, middle classes benefit mostly from, the middle classes benefit and and upper classes benefit mostly from migrant labour, you know, uh, who serves you in your, in the restaurants when we go out for nice expensive meals, which are pretty hard to avoid in Dublin these days, who serves your coffee, who cleans the offices, who looks after your children, who looks after your elderly people, Um, uh, who drives a taxi. Yeah, all these things benefit middle class people more than it benefits working class people who can't really afford those services. And the other, uh, but then the people who actually... Um, have to host migrants are working class areas. Migrants, of course, are going to go to the areas where rents are cheaper and they are predominantly areas that are less desirable, shall we say, in inverted commas. Uh, and they're going to rent or buy properties there, but who owns those properties? It's usually middle class or wealthy people who own those properties. So these are all different ways that elites benefit, or middle classes and elites, yeah, benefit from migration, whereas working class people won't benefit uh, to the same extent of those. But it's usually working class areas which uh, um, uh, house migrant communities, and the job of integration is left to working class people by and large, uh, uh, on working class areas or their representatives who uh, receive very little resources in order to do a good job of integration.
0: You've suggested that politicians and the media aren't properly discussing the more difficult impacts of immigration that they tend to focus on the positive. So what are these difficult impacts?
1: Well, they are basically around distribution, about the distribution of the benefits of uh, migration. You know, our society, our economy needs migrants. When you think about it, Sarka, you know, like I think it's around 60% of uh, our population go to third level education. They're not going to work in bars for the rest of their life. They're not going to go to college for three. I teach them. They're not going to go to college for four years and then go and work in a bar for the rest of their life. But the bars are there. The supermarkets are there. The uh, the agricultural jobs are there. They have to be filled and they're being filled by migrants who do come and are willing to do them. And it's an absolutely essential part of our economy, which was revealed to be essential, of course, during the COVID epidemic. Let's not forget Many, if not most of those so-called frontline workers and not just healthcare workers, but supermarket workers, uh, the people, delivery people and so on, there are migrants uh, and we need them. Uh, So, you know, we've got to have a realistic conversation about that, saying, look, you know, migration is a fact of life. It's not going to go away. People are going to move. And they're going to come where the jobs are. And at the moment the jobs are here. And Irish people cannot fill the majority of those jobs either because they don't want to or because they're skilled to they're being skilled to do other jobs, more high-level, high-skilled jobs, shall we say. Um, so it's kind of like saying those things, but also recognizing that there is a, a fundamental and equitable distribution of the benefits of that migration, the wealth that is being generated by those migrants, and that that has to be more equitably distributed by greater investment in areas which primarily host uh, migrant communities, which are working-class areas, uh, primarily, yeah? uh, Areas that have been neglected uh, by the state for a very long time. Um, And so the, the, the discussion will always come back to that issue of distribution. I mean, I was just thinking about it earlier on, you know, um, when you think about um, the whole discussion around the corporation tax coming in from multinationals and the government is saying basically that we can't spend that money. We've got to keep it for a rainy day. But yet a lot of that money has been actually generated by migrants, people coming into work in the tech sector. So people in working class areas and people in rural areas are saying, well, you know, why not? Why can't we spend that money? So it's these distributional questions that I think have to be at the heart of any debate and do that in a transparent and open manner, but which does not fall into this polarized, dichotomized, uh, rancid, racist debate, which the far right is trying to, Promote and um, which has been taken up by many, but well, quite a few mainstream politicians. I'm afraid to say.
0: Coming up, I speak to political correspondent Jennifer Bray about why politicians are failing to grasp the nettle. Jen, the first installment of our Irish Times Snapshot series, which is led by Ipsos Behaviour and Attitudes, shows that immigration has rapidly risen to the top of the table when it comes to assessing what issues are at the forefront of Irish people's minds. Can I ask, though, where was immigration as a subject six months ago?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one, because when Russia first invaded Ukraine, there was definitely a feeling in government that this was a temporary crisis that this would be maybe a three to six month issue. As we've seen since then, it's very much not a temporary issue. It's a permanent issue. And there was even a European directive, beneficiaries of temporary protection that allowed Ukrainians to come to Ireland and to other European countries um, and seek shelter uh, and, uh, and refuge and support from the state. And um, that directive now has been extended and it's been extended a number of times and, and now it's extended out till next year. So the difference really between now and then is that immigration has become a dominant issue in Irish politics because now there is a realisation this is not a temporary issue. This is a permanent feature now of our society. Um, It's a permanent feature in the European context um, and particularly when we see increased geopolitical tensions and no resolution as of yet or no likely immediate resolution to the war in Ukraine. So the difference is it's taken centre stage effectively because it is a permanent issue.
0: And you've mentioned the Ukrainians arriving here. It's also worth mentioning that the number of asylum seekers coming has increased over the last few years. And then also there's a large number of migrants coming here for for skilled work. So overall, it's a growing cohort of people coming from different countries. This leads to a lot of debate in the Len about immigration. But Jen, does what politicians are saying publicly about immigration match what they're saying in private?
2: Yeah, I think initially when tensions were much less inflamed, Like I said, there was this idea of it being a temporary issue, certainly in local communities who were the first areas maybe um, to to accommodate, particularly in buildings that maybe weren't suitable. Politicians basically, what they said to me privately was that they were afraid that if they raised these issues in the doll or with the media, that they would be seen to be pandering towards the far right or that they would be seen to be engaging in dog whistle politics. So that's what they were saying at the time, kind of behind the scenes. As this has become more and more of an issue, they are now saying publicly those things that they were saying privately. So it's kind of that way around, if you get me. So I think that the issue also is more intense for local politicians because they're the front line of defence for different political parties. They're the ones who are kind of most in touch at what's happening in their local communities. And even if you look at what happened in Mayo, there was counsel- There were councillors in Mayo. They passed a motion calling on the local authority staff to effectively stop talking to the Department of Integration in relation to housing refugees and asylum seekers. And, and that passed unanimously. And it passed with the support uh, of government parties uh, politicians from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil backed that motion so we can see that locally politicians I think are more likely to speak out about what they see as issues in the community whereas nationally I think TDs for example feel more pressure to kind of toe the party line. Now, politicians can see these snapshot results.
0: Uh, Do you expect more of them to start seizing on immigration as a potential vote getter and that rejecting housing for asylum seekers actually could be a way of garnering more votes in upcoming elections?
2: I think there's no doubt that some politicians will and maybe would have been predisposed towards cynically maybe using that as an issue. But I think realistically, it will be less about them looking at the issue of immigration and saying I can get votes from that it probably more likely particularly like I said for local politicians is that they're very much in touch with what's happening on the ground Mm -hmm. and they feel obliged to represent their constituents who they're being inundated with requests and queries and questions from so I think it's more that they probably are reflecting what they're seeing rather than cynical vocating, But there will always be politicians, particularly towards the far right, who absolutely will seize upon an issue. And we saw this even in COVID with lockdowns and um, vaccinations, mm. uh, that people would seize on this to kind of gain a platform. And I have no doubt that that will be a, a factor in the local elections, just to what extent, we don't really know yet.
0: I want to ask about one political party, that's Sinn Féin, because we've seen a shift in Sinn Féin's stance on immigration.
2: How are they walking this tightrope? It's a difficult one for Sinn Féin because there's a good chunk of their base maybe that would have kind of nationalist tendencies um, for obvious reasons. And I think for the party, they've been trying to walk this tightrope for the last year, basically, of um, holding on to that kind of vote in their party, while also kind of sticking to their party line, which originally was that if you have a protest, uh, if you have issues with People being placed in one location or the other and you don't think it's suitable. You don't protest the place. You protest at the doll. You protest the government effectively. And that was their initial position. And they held that, I would say, for almost a full year. And then I started noticing a bit of a shift in their language around Christmas time. Mm. And I know even there was an interview that Mary Lou Macdonald, the party leader, gave to the journal and she was kind of criticising the state. She was saying they failed to communicate with communities on the issue and she called for a space to ask questions. And the comments were interesting because a lot of the criticism we've heard of parties maybe that have, or independent politicians even, that have lurched to the left, is this idea that you, what are you opening up to when you're talking about asking questions? Mm. You know, what doors are you opening there? What exactly are you saying? And then she also gave an interview to the Business Post um, where she was asked about... People who maybe can't get a home, Um, you know, she was saying if your son or daughter can't get housed and you reckon that lots more people are coming into the country, naturally enough, you're going to say, well, how am I going to be housed? And that kind of fed into that idea that these people are coming over here taking our homes, Um, although she did, uh, in, in fairness, she did clarify afterwards that... She shares that anger but it's on the government so it's kind of pivoting back to the original Mm. position. For them, I think now we've seen opinion polls over the weekend. Now it was just one opinion poll and you always have to take kind of, you know, not too seriously Um, but it's very interesting, you know, down four points and I think they will be worried that if they don't look after that base in the party that I talked about the nationalist base, they will lose them and if they veer too far to the right they will lose other parts of the party Mm. who really would not be up for voting for Sinn Féin if they thought that that's the road they were going as. So they're kind of in a kind of no-win situation here. Mm-hmm. Is it impossible,
0: Jen, for government politicians to counteract claims around scarcity and underinvestment without actually exposing their own failures in this regard and just leaving them open to
2: attack from the opposition? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because, you know, if you look at the, things that have been raised in communities, it is the fact that the GP services are already stretched or they can't get hospital appointments, you know, that there's not enough places in the schools. And that was the case long before anybody had arrived into the communities. Um, And so if those pressures were there already, it is hard for the government to come along and then say, well, what are you complaining about? Especially when they're asking communities to absorb a lot more. So that's why we saw this idea of... 10 places to be picked that have the highest number of asylum seekers and refugees and that they will be given access to a special fund effectively Um, and we haven't got a figure on that yet but it could be anywhere up to 100 million Mm. Um, and that was a recognition of the fact that those communities are stretched but the issue of them being stretched was before this as well so yeah it's a tricky one for them
0: That's all for today For more from Jennifer Bray on the immigration debate and the latest on immigration in Ireland subscribe subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Aideen Finnegan and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.